Good evening, denizens of the internet. This is Dr. Nairi A. Bakalian, and you are listening to Friday Night History, your favorite historical romp with your favorite history dyke. Ronald McDonald, the first ALT. Okay, so... Our story begins with Ronald McDonald, 1824 to 1894, who, it must be said from the beginning of our story, was not in the hamburger business. He was born in British North Columbia at Fort Astoria in what's now Oregon. His father, Archibald, was a Hudson's Bay Company trader, and his mother, Koalehoa, was a daughter of Konkamli, a leader of the Lower Chinook people. And after an early working career that included a stint as a clerk in a bank, MacDonald decided in his early 20s that he would visit Japan. Yes, Japan was still in the middle of a policy of carefully controlled international contact. Yes, it was not easy to even get into Japan legally, but Ronald McDonald didn't really care. He wanted very much to go to Japan, to learn about it, and to teach Japanese people about the Western world. So, signing on with the American whaling ship Plymouth in 1845, he made his way westward until in 1848 the ship was off the coast of western Ezochi, now northwestern Hokkaido. You have to understand, though, European and American whalers in the early to mid-19th century were only increasing in number. No less than Herman Melville himself, in his famous novel Moby Dick, said the following, quote, If that double-bolted land, Japan, is ever to become hospitable, it is the whale ship alone to whom the credit will be due, for already she is on the threshold. It wasn't just Americans, either. British, Russians, French, and many others appeared in Japanese waters with increasing frequency, and regardless of Japanese laws surrounding national seclusion, they couldn't legislate away the fact that these foreign ships were coming in increasing numbers, a trend that was only to increase with the increase of steamship traffic in the area as well. And there was a distinct school of thought in some circles of Japanese political leadership that there should be some sort of adaptation to the seclusion laws, at the very least in the interest of improving Japan's capability to defend itself against potential foreign aggression. The House of Date, my guys, of Sendai Domain in the north of Honshu, was a prominent advocate of this. Being tasked with coast defense duty in Ezochi, its troops regularly encountered Russian warships, so this was a problem for Tokugawa Japan, and it wasn't going away. Fast forward to the summer of 1848. MacDonald talked the Plymouth's captain into letting him disembark. So with all of his belongings, and clothes, and supplies, in a little boat, he was dropped off and headed in the vague direction of Hokkaido, hoping for the best. Eventually, while practically freezing to death and falling out of his own boat along the way, MacDonald washed ashore in Rishiri, a little island off the coast of Ezochi. And, of course, the first people to find him were the local Ainu community, who turned him over to the authorities of Matsumae Domain, the sole domain in Ezochi. At the time, the island was not part of Japan, that came in 1869, but it was actively being colonized. So after passing through Hakodate, MacDonald was sent south to Nagasaki, 
on Kyushu. He was a foreigner, after all, and the one legal place for foreigners to enter Japan, or wait to get picked up to be sent out of Japan, was there. He wasn't the only person who went to Nagasaki by way of Hakodate, though. Fifteen men from the now-famous New Bedford Whaler Lagoda, mutineers, I might add, also washed ashore in Ezochi, not far from Hakodate. They, too, were sent to Nagasaki and held in confinement under the supervision of the Nagasaki Magistrate, the city's governor who oversaw Nagasaki as a direct possession of the Tokugawa shogunate. They tried to escape, failed, were placed under stricter observation and interrogated with increasing severity. The Dutch factor of Dejima, Joseph Heinrich Levison, was aware of their situation and secretly sent for aid to the Dutch diplomatic delegation at the port of Canton in China, who passed the news on to the local American diplomats for help with repatriating the Lagoda mutineers. The U.S. Navy's East India Squadron took on the task of recovering the shipwrecked mutineers along with MacDonald. Now, at the time... The shogunate's interpreters and other linguists in the feudal clans in Japan by and large spoke Dutch and only had a basic, mostly second-hand knowledge of English. So while MacDonald waited in Nagasaki for the next ship to come get him, ironically, he got his wish. He got to have cultural exchange and language instruction. The shogunate, taking advantage of a native speaker while they had one, sent 14 interpreters to study English with MacDonald. So if you're a former Jet or other ALT who works or worked in Japan as an English teacher, Ronald McDonald was the first to do what you're doing. But the U.S. government's agents in East Asia were on the, on the move. Enter one Captain James Glenn, commanding USS Preble, a sloop of the U.S. Navy's East India Squadron. There had been prior American attempts, again driven by whalers, to force diplomatic relations on the Tokugawa shogunate, but they had never panned out. But Glynn had a mission to pick up castaways, and received orders that he was not to back down in pursuing negotiations with the shogunate, if at all possible. So, while MacDonald kept busy teaching English in Nagasaki, the Prebles set sail for Japan. Having received word from Joseph Henry Levison, Dutch factor of Dejima, that the Whaler Lagoda's 15 mutineers needed urgent repatriation due to harsh conditions of confinement by the shogunate authorities, the USS Preble, under the command of Captain Glynn, sailed to Nagasaki from Canton with the mission of recovering the mutineers, who were then being held in confinement by the Nagasaki magistrate. Preble named for early U.S. naval officer Commodore Edward Preble, and the second ship to bear the name, was a 16-gun sloop of war, built in 1839 and commissioned in 1840 at Portsmouth Navy Yard in Kittery, Maine. First serving with the U.S. Navy's African Squadron, she transferred to the Pacific Squadron in 1846, where she took part in the Mexican-American War, before continuing on to the East India Squadron, which was the squadron to which she belonged in 1848. In 1848, she was under the command of Captain James Glynn, and the squadron was under the command of Commodore David Geisinger. In his later deposition to Captain Glynn... Ronald MacDonald related that he had arrived in Nagasaki on 15 October 1848. 
After trampling on the image of the Virgin Mary, the type of image in Japanese called a fumie, a stepping image, meant to prove that a person wasn't Catholic, he was interrogated by, quote, the governor, unquote. While there was no set method for translation of Japanese titles into English at the time, we can reasonably assume that given the Fumie and the status of Nagasaki as a city under direct shogunal control, this was the Nagasaki magistrate, who, as best I can work out giving sources on hand, was either Inaba Masanobu or Hiraga Katsada, both of them Tokugawa vassals. After figuring out that he wasn't a Catholic, the magistrate had a range of questions for MacDonald. Where was he from? What ship did he arrive on? Who was its captain? Why had it sailed into Japanese waters? Relaying these questions was an interpreter named Moriyama Einosuke. He was already well-versed in Dutch, but he was one of the few people in Japan at the time who had any command of English at all. Per MacDonald's testimony, Moriyama was one of the Japanese officials who was most regularly with him, and as we'll see later, he left quite an impression on Moriyama. The common people appeared to be amiable and friendly, but the government agents were quite the reverse, MacDonald noted in his testimony to Glynn. And he discovered that the interpreters assigned to him, most notably Moriyama, were interested in improving their grasp of English. Fourteen men studied with MacDonald in this way. Nishi Yoichiro. Uemura Sakushichiro, Nishi Keitaro, Ogawa Keijuro, Shioya Tanesaburo, Nakayama Hyoma, Inomata Dennosuke, Shizuki Tatsuichiro, Iwase Yashiro, Hori Ichiro, Shige Takanosuke, Namura Tsunenosuke, Motoki Shozaemon, and of course, Moriyama Enosuke himself. Almost daily, these men studied with him. They would read to him he would correct their pronunciation and explain the meanings as needed, as opposed to earlier English instruction, which happened piecemeal and through Dutch speakers whose own grasp of English was non-native. This was the first proper English instruction to take place in Japan. MacDonald was kept under the custody of the Nagasaki magistrate until the 24th of April, when he was handed over to the Dutch factor, Levison, while negotiations were underway with Captain Glynn. Per its logbook, Preble arrived off Nagasaki on the 18th of April, although MacDonald says he heard guns firing to announce Preble's approach on the 17th. Its entry into the harbor was initially blocked by coast patrol boats of the shogunate, but Glynn forced his way through their picket line, anchoring inside the harbor and refusing to move until his demands, chief of which was the repatriation of the Lagoda mutineers, were met. With a bit of help from the Dutch factor at Dejima, negotiations did happen and concluded successfully, as MacDonald noted. On the morning of the 26th of April, the interpreter came to my prison and exhibited a letter, translated into English, purporting to be a communication to the commanding officer of the Preble, requiring him to leave the harbor of Nagasaki on the reception of the 15 men. Per Preble's log, the ship left Nagasaki on April 27th. MacDonald's deposition to Captain Glynn was given three days later en route to Wusung, modern Wusong, in northern Shanghai. Ronald MacDonald's time in Japan was over. On reaching Hong Kong on May 21st, MacDonald disembarked and took the long way home by way of Australia and Europe. He returned home to Canada in 1853. Despite several more business ventures and travels, he was unable to escape financial hardship at the end of his life. 
He died in 1894 in Washington State, where he's buried in Ferry County. Our story doesn't end here, though. Captain Glynn's testimony was influential in shaping U.S. policy toward Japan in the near term. And sure enough, a mere four years later, Commodore Matthew Colbraith Perry's fleet anchored off of Uraga Bay to deliver President Millard Fillmore's letter to the shogun, urging, backed up by Perry's naval guns, the opening of Japan, and achieved by sheer firepower what Glynn could not achieve with a single ship. Initial discussions with local shogunate officials happened via Dutch and Chinese-speaking Japanese interpreters. Perry, in turn, had brought along Samuel Wells Williams, 1812-1884, as an interpreter. Williams was a missionary and linguist who worked in Canton, modern Guangzhou, for the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. Years earlier, he had been on the Morrison mission, an abortive private attempt to open diplomatic negotiations with the Japanese government under the pretext of returning Japanese castaways. He was fluent in Chinese, and he had some knowledge of Dutch and Japanese as well. Williams was one of the handful of people allowed to keep a private journal of the Perry mission. In his entry for Friday, March 3, 1854, he noted the arrival of a new and superior interpreter from Nagasaki, who came up in a hurry to aid in the negotiations, then in their second phase. Williams said that the man speaks English well enough to render any other interpreter unnecessary, and that he inquired for the captain and officers of the Preble, and asked if Ronald MacDonald was well, or if we knew him. The interpreter was Moriyama Enosuke. I'm Nairi, and this has been Friday Night History. Now, questions? Friday Night History is a weekly historical romp with me, your favorite history dyke, Dr. Nairi A. Bakalyan. Our theme is Buga Blue by Craig Friedrich, performed by the U.S. Army Blues, available royalty-free from pixabay.com music. To support Friday Night History and the rest of my work, sign up today to become a patron at patreon.com slash riversidewings. That's all for this week of Friday Night History. Next week, the shove heard round the world. Before Commodores Perry and Glynn and their missions to Japan, there was Biddle. Slapdash gunboat diplomacy, the Opium War the Mexican-American War, and what happens when your only language in common is a tenuous grasp of Dutch. Hope to see you there. And remember, who you are and what lights your fire is worth fighting for. I'll see you around.